A few places in the New Testament summarize the Old Testament, and we love them. The Old Testament largely works as a story, and there's the Psalms and, and the poetry, and, and, but, but all those happen within the narrative, within the superstructure of God's story. And one of our favorite summaries of the Old Testament is in Hebrews chapter 11. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen, for by it the men of old gained approval. By faith we understand that the worlds were prepared by the word of God so that what is seen was not made out of things which are visible. By faith Abel offered to God a better sacrifice than Cain, through which he obtained the testimony that he was righteous, God testifying about his gifts. And through faith, though he is dead, he still speaks. By faith Enoch was taken up so that he would not see death, and he was not found because God took him up, for he obtained the witness that before his being taken up he was pleasing to God. Notice the writer of Hebrews does not talk about this as though it is a legend or a myth or uh, the story of Enoch. He says Enoch, historically, was taken up, and we're in, we're in Genesis. Without faith, it is impossible to please God, for he, the one who comes to God must believe that he is, and that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. Moving forward in Genesis, by faith Noah, being warned about, uh, by God about things not yet seen, and reverence prepared an ark for the salvation of his household by which he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness which is according to faith. By faith Abraham, when he was called, obeyed by going out to a place which he was to receive for an inheritance, and he went out not knowing where he was going. By faith he lived as an alien in the land of promise, as in a foreign land dwelling in tents with Isaac and Jacob, fellow heirs of the same promise. For he was looking for the city, which has foundations, whose architect and builder is God. By faith, even Sarah herself received the ability to conceive even beyond the proper time of life, since she considered him faithful who had promised. Therefore, there was born even of one man and him as good as dead at that, as many descendants as the stars of the heaven in number, innumerable as the sand which is by the seashore. All these died in faith without receiving the promises, but having seen them and having welcomed them from a distance, having confessed that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For those who say such things make it clear that they are seeking a, they are seeking a country of their own, and indeed, if they'd been thinking of that country from which they went out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country, that is, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. And he who had received the promises was offering up his only begotten son. It was he to whom it was said, In Isaac your descendants shall be called. He considered that God is able to raise people even from the dead, from which he also received him back as a type. By faith, Isaac blessed Jacob and Esau, even regarding things to come. By faith, Jacob, as he was dying, blessed each of the sons of Joseph and worshiped, leaning on the top of his staff. By faith, Joseph, when he was dying, made mention of the exodus of the sons of Israel and gave orders concerning his bones. And that takes you to the end of the book of Genesis. And then the writer of Hebrews starts on Exodus. It talks about Moses. And he goes through the history of Israel. Tonight, we're learning how the resurrection is implied in the Old Testament, especially in the life of Abraham. We need God to be our teacher, the Spirit of God who lives in us, who's in our hearts as a pledge to be our teacher as we approach the Word of God tonight, studying from the little apocalypse in Isaiah 26. 
we're focusing uh, on a little side study of the biblical doctrine of resurrection in the Old Testament. Let's take a moment for silent prayer, and then I'll open us up as we come to the throne of grace. Let's pray. Father, we pause tonight to thank you for our justification. Without opening our mouths except in praise of you. Without opening our mouths except in saying we trust in Jesus as our Savior, which we can do without even verbalizing. We can trust in your Son. We are justified by your grace through faith. We have the declaration of your righteousness to our account. And we are by the baptism, by means of the Spirit, united to your Son. Past, present, and future, all the things that belong to Jesus Christ are ours, including resurrection glory at your right hand. We thank you for the riches of your grace that you've shared with us, for the revelation of these things. Father, we wouldn't know them except that you've told us. And as little babies, as Jack mentioned earlier uh, in prayer, as little babies, we, we read these things and we barely grasp their significance, that we are capitalized, that we are infinitely wealthy because we are empowered by your spirit for the work that you have for us to do as the earnest of our inheritance. Father, we want to understand better and know you better and understand what you've said and done better tonight as we open the book of Genesis to see how the, re- the resurrection must be in, uh, concluded from what you promised Abraham. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. In Isaiah 26, 19, your dead will live. Their corpse will rise. You who lie in the dust awake and shout for joy. For your dew is as the dew of the dawn and the earth will give birth to the departed spirits. The, unattest, the uncontested reference, generally, to the resurrection in the Old Testament, Isaiah 26 and verse 19. And we've been looking at that and saying, you know, um, what else do we learn? And you've got a set of notes that we've shared, and let me grab some handfuls of context here. This is all that we've done recently, and we're really launching tonight from this first little block when the Lord Jesus, if you look to the New Testament, all the New Testament writers say that the Old Testament is teaching the resurrection of the dead. There are two aspects of resurrection that are expected from the Old Testament. The first and most important is the resurrection of the Messiah, the one who will rule forever on David's throne and somehow will die. That's the prophecies. That's what they're expecting in 700 BC. That Isaiah 53, written by Isaiah, who died in the um, 7th century BC, that he would be the suffering servant of Isaiah 53, and yet he's going to be the child who rules in Isaiah 9. And how, is the, how did the prophecies of Isaiah resolve about Messiah? Isaiah is intensely messianic like the rest of the Old Testament. And the answer is that's the implication of resurrection. And Jesus teaches us when he rebukes the Sadducees in Matthew 22 and Luke 20, as we've seen in some detail, Jesus teaches us a rationale for how to understand the Old Testament. The people who in life can say, Yahweh is our God. The people who in life can say that in their physical lives must be resurrected, Jesus says. Because God is not the God of the dead, but the God of the living. And when he, generations after Abraham's death, hundreds of years after Abraham's death, Abraham is around around numbers 2000 B.C., Moses meets the Lord, um, and the Exodus date is 1446 or so B.C., and so 
Uh, you back off about 40 years from that or something. Um, it, when Moses met the Lord, not, it wasn't 40 years before the Exodus, but um, there, there, there's a time before 1446 when Moses met the Lord in the burning bush in the wilderness of Midian. Um, in, actually, at Mount, at, he's, he's working in Midian, but he's at um, Mount, Mount um, Horeb when he sees the burning bush. God tells him, bring, your, bring, ex, bring the Israelites to this mountain and meet me. The point that Jesus makes is that in Exodus 3, Yahweh says, I'm the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. It's exactly what we'll read tonight. God said to Abraham, I'm your God. And the question is, well, did he stop being Abraham's God when Abraham died, when he was buried, when his bones disintegrated? Is, is, is he still God of Abraham? Yes, he still was. Hundreds of years later, he's still the God of Abraham. But he's not the God of the dead, but the God of the living. And this little hint Jesus gives us about how to reason with the Old Testament is very profound. And we don't get much other reasoning about the resurrection of the Old Testament from Jesus, but that's enough. And so I've, I've taken a cue from the Lord Jesus in his teaching and rebuke of the Sadducees in Luke and Matthew. Tonight, I've gone after the places where the resurrection is given by implication in the life of Abraham. The resurrection in the life of Abraham is what we're after. In your notes, we say that the Old Testament teaches resurrection in two ways. There are two ways that you see the resurrection taught. And the first is by implication. Before he ever says the dead will rise or talks about the resurrection of the Messiah in Psalm 16, he says that he's the God of the living and Abraham has died, who's got a forever promise of land. It is everywhere in the Old Testament that this is implied because of what Jesus says. People that can claim Yahweh is their God and Yahweh is the God of the living, they must all be resurrected by Jesus' logic. You understand he's taught us something very important about the relationship between an eternal being who has no beginning and no end and mortal beings whose bodies die, but they have no ending in their spiritual nature. There, is, there always must be some sense in which they are connected to their God. And that is, that's, that's the metaphysics that Jesus is pointing at when he says he's the God of the living. And so Abraham must be resurrected. This is everywhere that you find people calling on God, calling on God as their God. And it's true for all believers of all time. We will all be resurrected to serve him in immortal resurrection bodies. All the promises that contain forever blessings are a good indication of this. For Abraham to enjoy the land promises, we'll see tonight, he has to be resurrected. Because as we read in Hebrews, he got the promise, but he never got the fulfillment. He never owned what God promised. And I'll show you that in some detail, and hopefully it won't be painful detail tonight as we look at Genesis. All the promises that are eschatological to the immediate audience of what's going to happen, like Isaiah 25, 8, when God's going to vanquish death and wipe away every tear. These are implications. These are not statements of the fact of resurrection, but they must demand it. There has to be a resurrection for these things to be true. And that's the nature of the scriptures, and that's the task of theology, to reason. Jesus teaches us in Luke 20 and Matthew 22 to be reasoning with the scriptures and say, well, we must see a resurrection of Abraham. He's got to come back. The resurrection in Abraham's story takes you back to Genesis chapter 12. If you want to turn, Genesis 12, which is remarkably 
fantastically, magnificently exciting to us to go to Genesis 12 and say, God started over. Do you know Genesis? Are you familiar with it? Some of you have tried and endeavored to start reading your Bible in January. You might have gotten through parts of Genesis before you petered out on your Bible reading plan. Not here at Preston City Bible Church. I know you read all the way through. You don't stop, right? Until you get to Genesis 5 and the genealogy and say, what's this for? Um, no, I don't want to be cynical. Of course, you're reading your Bible. But this is very familiar to us. But are you aware of the incredible breakpoint that happens between Genesis 11 and Genesis 12? Are you aware that the Bible stops being about everybody in Genesis 12.1 and starts being about one man and his family? And the rest of the 66 books, the rest of Genesis and everything else, focuses on that family. It's amazing how that works. I have in times past said that the New Testament is written by Jews, children of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, after the flesh, except for uh, Luke and Acts, because Luke is a, is a Greek. But it doesn't say he's a Greek. He's Paul's physician, and it may well be, and John Miles thinks, that he's a Hellenistic Jew, which would take away the one Gentile out of the New Testament scriptures, and now it's all written by Israel, which is exactly what you, Paul says, that we have the oracles of God from Israel. doesn't matter. I don't think it matters. It's interesting. The Bible doesn't say Luke was of a Hellenistic Jew. But the point is that the scriptures after Genesis 11 are about one family. And Genesis 1 through 11 is the prologue to say, where do we come from? What are we about? And do you know what Genesis 1 through 11 is? It's many things. It's the part of the Bible that Bible-believing people who say they believe in it say, they, that, well, I don't believe in that part. The primeval history where people live long ages. The stuff about Nephilim and the infiltration of angels into human, the human race. All the difficult things, the flood that is a universal flood, and it's so explicit with the flood. In Genesis 7, that it says the highest hill was 15 fathoms beneath the top of the water. And the, the water topped over the highest mountain 15 fathoms, 15 whatever, however many feet that is, apparently, which would secure passage of the ark over anything beneath it so that the, the displacement of the ark would be addressed, would be, would be safe. And what that means geologically, hydrodynamically, is that there cannot be a local flood theory by what Genesis says. It has to be that the volume of water, if it covered the highest mountain, 15 fathoms, I mean, the whole earth was underwater. Well, where did all the water come from? I, I think Genesis 2 kind of tells you there was reserves of water under the ground. And, the water, and the, the water springs broke forth. And there's a lot more about the Bible and about science and, and physics than we know. You get to 2 Peter 3, and he made everything out of water. Well, that's, that, that's not how things work now. And we can't imagine how that could be, except that we have an infinitely powerful creator who made water. He's not struggling with, with that. But the point is that you have so many things in our worldview that are defined in Genesis 1 through 11. And it's the passage that gets thrown out. And that, there are documentaries out today as Genesis history that are trying to show that you really can't subscribe to this true myth theory that post-conservative evangelicals try to do. People in the, the theological seminaries that are respected in the Old Testament departments will deny the historicity of Genesis 1 through 11 as actual events describing actual people. 
And they really struggle embracing Darwin and theistic evolution. They struggle with Adam created from the dust of the ground and Eve created from his, taken from his, his side and formed, built, fashioned into a woman. They can't, they can't go with that because it violates their Darwinistic uh, prior commitments now. And so Genesis 1 through 11, the worldview founding passage that lets you know that there's a problem with the mankind. It started in Genesis 3. We're fallen and broken in sin. We've, we've submitted to the creature, Satan, in the serpent, and, and we're separated and fallen from God. And man constantly makes the wrong choice about responding to God in faith. That's Genesis 1 through 11. And it ends with uh, the, the flood and then sort of the, the addendum is the Tower of Babel, and it's another rejection of God's revelation, another denial of his claim on the human race, another universal repudiation of the creator-creature distinction. And then God starts over. Genesis 12 is the break. He says he calls, he calls one man, and he says, you're going to separate from everything you know, and I'm going to start over with you. That's Genesis 12. There's an Orthodox uh, Jewish news commentator I like, to, I like to listen to. I listen to him on one... X speed. Other people, I'll speed up to 1.5 speed. But I'll listen to this guy in one time, just normal speed. Because I can't really understand him at 1.5 speed. And he'll say, when you ask him about the Bible, I've heard him say, well, I don't really believe in Genesis 1 through 11, but I really believe in, in the history, the historical narratives of Abraham, and, and then on. Which is an amazing admission. Since the argument for the need of a savior is most explicitly presented in Genesis 1 through 11. And if you're going to reject the Messiah, Jesus of Nazareth, who came as the Jewish answer to the Jewish presentation of the problem of the world, which is how God revealed it. If you're going to deny that, you might as well, you know, what bothers me is Christians that that claim Jesus of Nazareth and reject Genesis 1 through 11. So they know they don't really understand why we need him. They don't understand. They can't use Romans 5.12 and Adam all sinned. Who's that? How is that possible? So anyway, I could, I could regale you all evening with my view of the importance of Genesis 1 through 11, but 12 starts over with the new family, and 12, 1 through 3 is the Abrahamic promise. And God makes a promise to Abraham, and you know that he says several things to him, but we can distill out of the promise like three key things, land, seed, and promise, or land, seed, and blessing, sorry, in the promise. Go forth from your country, from your relatives, from your father's house. In other words, separate yourself from all your inheritance, all your cultural, um, all your cultural ascendancy, everything that makes you valuable from a human viewpoint, and basically become a, a beggar after the world. The world would say, if you lose your family, if you lose your inheritance from your father, if you lose your last name or your family identity, you don't have anything. You're starting from scratch. And you have to, you have to, and that's what God's doing. He's starting from scratch. You leave everything that is coming to you after the flesh to the land which I'll show you. And I'll make you a great nation. So God makes a promise. I'm going to start over with you. So you will step out in faith and leave everything you know, and I'll do something remarkable with you. I'll make you a great nation. I'll bless you. I'll make your name great, and so you shall be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and the one who curses you, I'll curse. And I want you to hear, I will bless those who bless you, and the one who curses you a little bit, different word, I will curse you a lot a bit. I will curse you a lot. I will curse them a lot. Light, a light disdain from your enemy will be a heavy cursing for me is what God actually says in the Hebrew there. But we're not, we're not verse by verse through Genesis, but that's what he says there. And in, in you, in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. And we know that that blessing promise is the Messiah. 
It is the resurrection. The fulfillment of that is your resurrection glory with your Savior in a body like his. That is the old, because that sets you up for the eternal state to rule with Christ in the coming kingdom. So I just skipped to the end of the Bible, but there he's talking about the end of the Bible and you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. So God starts over with one man, rejects all the human race that has rejected him and disobeyed him. And the reason they have is because they didn't trust him. And that's the problem. Genesis one through 11 is they don't trust him. And then Genesis 12 through 50 is you can trust God. And if you trust him, you'll obey him and trusting him, walk with him, step out in faith, believe what he said, and then take the step that faith calls for in obedience. And if you'll do that, you'll be pleased because God is worthy of your trust. And Abraham is a work in progress through the story. He's often knuckleheaded. He often makes mistakes. He makes horrible decisions, at least three key, really bad decisions he makes. The Hagar debacle, the, the, the Pharaoh debacle, and the Abimelech debacle. Two of those, he gives his wife away to foreign kings to be in their harem. Two of those are unthinkable abdications of manhood, of a man's responsibility that God's given him to provide, protect, and husband his wife. And the other is, um, is the effort to follow his wife, again, attacking marriage in uh, the, what he does with Hagar when he takes a second wife. The resurrection in Abraham's story is not presented explicitly in Genesis 12 because this is the opening way Moses presents this is where we came from. And that's what Genesis is. It's in context. It's who are we, the Exodus generation that's about to leave or just left Egypt? Who are we? We're the people that started in Genesis 12 when God started over with one man out of the human race to make a new, a new nation, a new people of Israel. But actually, the resurrection in Abraham's story becomes explicit in Genesis 13 when God reiterates this promise with more explicitness about the land. He said, I'll take you to the land, I'll show you in Genesis 12. But when you get to Genesis 13, the land promise becomes very interesting for us. In 13, we have an explicit reference to the land promise that makes makes it seem like Abraham has to be there forever to really receive this promise. In Genesis 15, he reiterates the land promise as well, and he does it again in Genesis 17. All of these are focused on the land, and this to me is very interesting and helpful for our way of reading the Bible. If, If it was an abstract sense that the kingdom that God promised if it could be abstract or spiritualized, that God the Spirit living in your heart is the presence of the kingdom. If that was what we had for the kingdom, and before they thought it was a political kingdom, but then it was going to be the presence of the Holy Spirit in your heart. If that's what the Old Testament allowed for, then a lot of the Reformed errant eschatology would, would be okay. The other systems of eschatology that will say that uh, we are somehow in the kingdom now, and that Jesus is sitting on the throne in heaven at the right hand of the Father, and the promised throne for David is the throne in heaven at the Father's right hand. That's what's being done. And the problem with doing that is uh, in this study right here, is that God promises him a piece of real estate. He doesn't promise him spiritual real estate. He promises him real estate. He promises him the land. Now, the seed, the children that come from Isaac and Jacob, 
And then Paul says, we're spiritual seed. Even Gentiles, the Romans are spiritual seed of Abraham if they followed him in the pattern of faith. That's Romans 4. Spiritual seed of Abraham. I can spiritualize the seed, apparently. I can spiritualize the blessing. It is a spiritual blessing. You have the Holy Spirit. I have guarantees my resurrection. But you can't really spiritualize the land promise that throughout the Old Testament, beginning in Genesis, is specified between two rivers. It's a specific piece of property. And that's really an interesting study to get into. And so when you read in Hebrews that the land that they were hoping for was, had its foundations from God, this is in the new heavens and new earth, the new Jerusalem, comes down from heaven, and guess what? It's on the same piece of real estate. It's still this forever promise of land. And so I can't spiritualize the promises that God gave Abraham in such a way that, for example, they'll say, well, the seed is now the church, so the church is Israel in its new form. And so the way we say that, they're they're claiming the church has replaced Israel. No, 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 that's anti-Semitism to us. We believe supersessionism is another word for that, is anti-Semitic. No, we expect God to save national genetic Israel, that God has a purpose for future national Israel. And that's, that's the end of the trib. All of Israel will be saved. And uh, that's th- this study of land is one of the reasons why we are so careful to preserve a future national Israel because it's a forever land promised to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, their physical descendants, who are believers. Not all Israel is Israel. It's, it's not unbelieving Israel that is the heir. It will be believing Israel. But anyway, that's part of the reason because back in Genesis, he made these promises. And then the fourth one of the places, I said three major points in Abraham's life. It's really four. Genesis 22, just like we read in Hebrews 11, is the sacrifice of Isaac. And the only way Abraham can reason that it's okay to sacrifice the only begotten son through whom the seed will promise will be fulfilled, the only way he can do that is if, if Isaac's going to be resurrected, that there has to be the return, the raising up of Isaac, whom he received back as a type. And we may get to that. In Genesis 13, 14, Abraham, the Lord said to Abram, before he even named him Abraham, Abram, Avram, after Lot had separated from him, now lift up your eyes and look from the place where you are, northward and southward and eastward and westward. For all the land which you see, I will give it to you and to your descendants forever. I'll make your descendants as the dust of the earth, so that if anyone can number the dust of the earth, then your descendants can also be numbered. Arise, walk through about the land through its length and breadth, for I will give it to you. What's going on in Genesis 12? We saw the promise. And then you see Abraham's first great failure with Pharaoh. He goes down to, um, to Egypt and uh, out of fear because of Sarah's, uh, Sarai's abundant beauty, he says, tell them you're my sister so they don't kill me to take you as, as their wife. Just let them have you as their wife. And men, we're supposed to say, I'd rather die than give my wife to Pharaoh. And Abraham says, I'd rather give my wife to Pharaoh than them kill me. And so we're embarrassed for Abraham's first knucklehead move right after the promise in Genesis 12. In Genesis 13, you have the big problem between Abraham and Lot. Now, he's partially fulfilled the command to separate from his family, but Lot, his, uh, his nephew, is still with him. So he hasn't really left his father's household in that sense. And it's not until Lot goes down to Sodom, down to the, the, down to the plain, where the grass seems flatter and cleaner and there's, there's cities and Starbucks and all that, 
as he separates out from Lot, after he does that, then God meets him again after that initial statement, that the way it's portrayed in Genesis 12. So uh, verse, um, verse 8, Abraham says, Lot, go. Um, you, you pick where to go. Lot selects the, the flat spot. So verse 12 says, Abram settled in the land of Canaan, while Lot settled in the cities of the valley and moved his tents as far as Sodom. Now the men of Sodom were wicked exceedingly and sinners against Yahweh. And then it says, and it's, a, it's an explicit thing, the way it breaks in verse 14, then the Lord. Then the Lord is the way it's stated. It starts with, oops, come in, laser beam. There we go. Va Yahweh. We, we very rarely have and the Lord as the beginning of a sentence in Hebrew. You usually get a verb first and a narrative. This means that we have a strong disjunction. There is a new thing that's happening. And this is the break. It is the kind of the paragraph break that lots down with all the wicked Sodomites. But and that's what the, that, the, the ites of Sodom be Sodomites. And, and then, but the Lord, the Lord Amar El Aram, the Lord said to Abram after Lot had separated from him, now lift your eyes and see from the place where you are here, northward, southward, eastward, westward, for all the land which you see to you, I will give it. Verse 15, he says, all the land which you see to you, I will give it. What it seems to mean as you just simply, as you read that, right, is that Laka to you, singular, masculine, singular, to you. Um, that's uh, at Nana. That's Natan, but it's first person. Uh, uh, Cal imperfect, I will give to you. And it's first person singular, I will give to you. The simple meaning of that sentence is that Abraham will have his hand out and God will give it to him. You see what I mean? Like he'll give him the land. Does anybody know the problem with that? Well, we'll get to it. It's very explicit. The entire Genesis 23 is to show you the problem with this. Don't skip ahead. And to your seed, ad alam, and to your seed forever, to your zira. So I'll give you the land, I'll give it to you, and I'll give it to your seed forever. It seems that the distinction between giving it to Abraham and Isaac is pretty clear. He'll give it to Abraham, and he'll give it to Isaac, and to Jacob, and to their kids forever. See what I mean? So it's not just the giving to the seed, it's the giving to him is my point. But he never received it. God promised to give him the land and his seed forever, but Abram never got the land. In his life, he died at a good old age. And he went to his fathers. He was gathered to his people, it says. But he never received the ownership of the land. So we're either going to fudge and say, well, you know, if he gave it to his kids, he gave it to him in retrospect, retroactively or something. Or this implies something. And I contend it implies that Abram's still going to receive the land. And I will set, Samach, uh, Sim, Sim, I will set, your seed as the dust of the earth. These two words, to set, to appoint, and zera, uh, seed, these two words happen a lot. This is a verb that you do with seed. You set it or appoint it as the dust of the earth. And so my Bible's translate, I'll make your, your seed as the dust of the earth. Now, your Bible says your descendants, but the word is zera, and it's always singular because this is a word like water that is a singular word that has a plural meaning. There is no singular water. I have a water. Well, you can have a bottle of water, but you can't have a unit of water that is a water. 
Water is a collective thing. Seed is a collective thing. We do this in English too with the word seed. We're going to go spread seed. I don't think the farmers say, I've got to go spread seeds. In fact, we've got a, a verb to seed. Go seed the fields, right? And so it works in English very similar to, to how it works in Hebrew. And so I'm just translating it as it's stated. Zera means seed. I will set your seed as the dust of the earth. So that means you're going to have a bunch of kids. And they'll be as like, uh, count the dust particles of the earth. Like you can't count them. Which if a man is able to count the dust of the earth, so also your, your seed can be counted. In verse 17, arise and walk in the land through its length and breadth. For to you I will give it. Lecha et nana. Natan, to give. And in the cal, imperfect, first person singular. I will give lecha to you. Ka is the second masculine singular um, pronominal suffix. It says uh, you. And Lamed, this, this word right here, this little letter right here says to. To you, I will give it. It's very explicit to me. To you, I will give it. So twice, so far in Genesis, God has told Abraham that he is going to give him the land. Again, if we wave our hand and say, well, by giving it to his kids, he's giving it to him. Okay, that's one possible explanation for what he means, but he's explicit. Remember in verse 13 or verse, um, verse um, 14, 15, he said, I'll give it to you and to your seed. To you I will give it and to your seed forever. Verse 15. See what's happening here? He's got to, there's more going on than just a good promise because he somehow has to receive it forever. And where is this land? Where's this land of promise? It's on the earth. It's not in Abraham's bosom, which apparently is in the earth. It's on the earth. Let's go to Genesis 14, where um, after meeting the Lord, which is an, just an amazing thought that he has this meeting with the Lord after separating from, Ot, from Lot. In verse 18 of chapter 13, Abram moved his tent and came and dwelt by the oaks of Mamre, which are in Hebron, and there he built an altar to the Lord. It's important that that place, Mamre, is very important to Abram. He's going to bury his wife there. But he's going to have to buy the land in Genesis, 13, Genesis 23 to do it because he doesn't own it, and he dies in chapter 25. He never owns the land. He has one little plot. It's a burial plot in this, near where he's here building the altar to the Lord. And then you have the exciting adventure story of these kings. And you've got, um, let's see. And, that, and it came about in the days of Amraphel, king of Shinar, Arioch, king of Eliaser, Keterleomer, king of Elam, and Tidal, king of Goyim, that they made war with Bera, king of Sodom, that's five kings so far, and with Bertha, king of Gomorrah, Bersha, king of Gomorrah, and Shinab, king of Admah, and Shemeber, king of Zeboim, and the king of um, Bela, that's Zoar. And you're like, what? There are all these little cities that have kings, they're like mayors. They're strong men. They're warlord kings that rule the city. It's the city-state system, generally, as we're seeing. And so they do represent formidable forces, but it's not like today we think the king of a country. It's the king of a, of a small district. Um, almost, if you will, like a sheriff, like with the power that a sheriff has um, in, in English culture. But he's the king of the local region. All these came as allies to the Valley of Sidim, that's a salt sea. And 12 years they served Keterleomer, but the 13th year they rebelled. 
And so in the 14th year, the next year, Keterleomer and the kings that were with him came and defeated Rephaim, the Rephaim in Ashtaroth, Karnaim, uh, and the Zuzim in Ham, and the Emim in Shavath Kiriathim. And you want to see the map on all that. But it's down near where Lot lives, where this all took place. And um, the Horites in their, in, Mount, in their Mount Seir, and as far as El Paran, which is in the wilderness, and they turned back and came to Mishpat, El Mishpat, and Kadesh, and conquered all the country of the Amalekites, and also the Amorites, and lived in Hazan Tamar, who lived in Hazan Tamar. And so they're just, this, this coalition under Keterleomer is wrecking um, the, the neighborhood. And the king of Sodom, and the king of Gomorrah, and, and Adma, the king of Zeboim, the king of Bela, um, came out and they arrayed for battle against the uh, Keterleomer and everybody in the Valley of Sidim, and uh, they lost. And their people were all taken captive, and that included Lot and his family. And so Lot is taken captive, and Abraham, who was a wealthy man already, uh, gets 400 people together, and they go and uh, defeat Keterleomer's forces uh, in a surprise attack to go reclaim their people. And he has a coalition that he does that with, and he meets Melchizedek, and it's the adventure story of, of uh, Abraham uh, on this raid to go save his family. And we love it, and it's fantastic, and it puts him in a bad position. If you go and raid a strong army and you beat them in a surprise attack, it puts you in a very vulnerable spot, and you, you don't want to have the escalation that comes from that. Oh, they, they think they're going to take us down? Well, that's a problem, and that explains, I think, Genesis 15.1. After these things, the words of the Lord came to Abram in a vision, saying, Do not fear, Abram. I am a shield to you. Your reward should be very great. Why does he need a shield? Because he just did um, a, a, a raid that um, could come back on him. But that's the context for Genesis 15. And Abram, um, this is, is this the third visit we've heard of that, that he has with the Lord uh, or is it the fourth? I mean, Abram got to talk to God a lot. All right, in verse 2, Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me since I am childless and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus? Since you have given no offspring to me, one born in my house is my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him saying, This man, Eliezer, will not be your heir, but one who will come forth from your own body, he shall be your heir. He took him outside in verse 5. And he said, remember how we talked about the dust before? Now let's talk about the stars. Now look at the heavens and count the stars if you're able to count them. Another uncountable thing, the stars. And he, he said to him, so shall your descendants be. Just like the sand of the, of the earth, like the stars of the heavens, this is how many kids are going to come out of your body. So Abram's he's nervous. He doesn't have any kids. His wife is unable to have children. And so he's, he's nervous about this promise, and that's the tension of the story of Abraham's life. And it's a call for the reader to say, I have my circumstances I can see, but I have God's revelation that he's told me, and I have to pick which one I'm going to trust. I'm going to believe my circumstances, or I'm going to believe God's promise. That's really the way it works. I'm going to take stock and, well, this is, this is how this is and this is, so I can put these together, and my circumstances mean I can never have kids, and so Eliezer. Or I can take God's promise, and he says, you know how radical it's getting that you don't have kids yet? You feeling that, Abram? Well, that's because I want you to trust me. Abram doesn't have miracle boy Isaac until he's 100 years old. 
That's the point of Genesis. That's the point of the life of Abraham is that you trust God's promises despite your circumstances and you act on that faith and obedience because God is who? He's God. He's trustworthy. He's worthy of your faith. So verse 6 is our key verse that Paul makes so much hay with in Romans. We're all heirs, spiritual seed of Abram because of verse 6. Then he believed in Yahweh and he reckoned it to him as righteousness. The transaction is that Abram believed in God's promise. And God accounted that, imputed that to him as righteousness. Your justification is by faith. And that's the pattern in Genesis 15, 6. And I do not believe that's the point at which Abram became a believer. I believe that that's the point that Paul uses to demonstrate that justification is by faith. And so that may be controversial, but I don't think it's that controversial. And he said to him, the Lord said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you the land to possess it. This land to possess it. To give you this land to possess it. Did you see that? To give you this land. He said, O Lord God, how may I know that I will possess it? And so he said to him, bring me a three-year-old heifer and a three-year-old female goat. And then it sets up the Abrahamic covenant, the actual covenant ceremony, where God appears in, in two theophanies. And puts Abraham to sleep and passes between these torn up animals and, and enacts this covenant. We have the promise of Genesis 12. You have the covenant ceremony in Genesis 15. And it restates some of the things that God has promised. And God says, um, says what he tells him um, about what's going to happen to him. Um, but it's an answer to the question, how can I know I will have it? Verse 7 says, and he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you from Ur of the Chaldeans. Hiphil from, um, what was that fun Hiphil stem verb? Tzalach. Uh, Yatsa, to cause to go out. I brought you. Up from Ur of the Chaldeans, which today is modern-day Al-Nasiriya in, in Iraq, I brought you up from here, and apparently, you know, the backstory in Abram is he's uh, aristocratic, apparently son of of, uh, of the priesthood in Ur of a, of a of a cult to a false god to the, apparently worshiping the moon, and so he went away from all of the paganism that was his inheritance and follows the Creator that the world has rejected. I brought you up from Ur of the Chaldeans to give to you this land to inherit it, to give. Letet. Now, this is the infinitive construct from Natan, to give. The basic word give. We named a child Nathan. He has given, or he gives. Okay? To give, laka. What does laka mean? La is to, and ka is you. To give you the land, ha'eretz, this land, in order to yarash, to inherit it. Your Bible, if you have a New American Standard, says to possess it, and then they put a footnote and say, or inherit. But Yarash is best not translated to possess, but how you come into possession, to inherit it. Inheritance is a big deal in the Old and New Testaments. Inheritance is a big deal in life. Inheritance is one of the main ways, if not the primary way, we come to own things in, in a biblical worldview. We receive them from the original giver, and he calls when he gives it to us an inheritance. Now, Hebrews will make a discussion about how you have to have a death in order to transmit uh, inheritance after the flesh. But God can't die. 
And the inheritance that he gives the children of Israel is just because they're his kids, they receive their inheritance, the portion that he apportions to them. And the land from Joshua and all through Deuteronomy is called their inheritance. Inheritance is how you come to own property. And so this is not, it doesn't seem to say that Abraham is emblematic of the nation. Abraham's asking, how will I know I'll possess it? Well, uh, I'll show you. I am, you, I am the Lord who brought you from the Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to inherit it. I believe I'm just crazy enough based on how Jesus taught us to read Genesis by implication to say that Abram will, in fact, own this land. God is going to give it to him. And he's going to give it to the rest of his heirs, the rest of the, rest of the, the line of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and all their kids, all their believing remnant are going to receive this land. And they are going to have to have a resurrection to, to, to own it. And then he said, Adonai Yahweh, he said, Adonai, not the Tetragrammaton where they pronounce Adonai, but he actually says Lord or Master, Adonai, and then Yahweh, Lord. So Lord God is one way to translate that. How may I know that I will, Yerash, that I will inherit it? How? Bama. How will I know that I will inherit it? If we flip over to Genesis 17, not in our pews, but in our Bibles, we'll skip the unfortunate event of Sarah saying, well, we don't have kids yet, so just use the Egyptian slave girl as a proxy wife. We'll do an old-timey surrogate uh, uh, motherhood. The old way to do it is you just take the second wife and then procreate, and then, but the first wife is like, has status as first wife, and babies born in the household are now hers uh, somehow because it was her proxy. And which, if, if that sounds crazy to you, that's probably because you have a biblical worldview. Because you've read Genesis 2 and God's design of one man and one woman. We're still in Genesis, by the way. And it sounds crazy to us because we just read Genesis 2 and God's design. And I contend that one of the great demonstrations of God using Abraham at over 100 years old and Sarah at 90, or 89, 90, to have this baby, and it's going to have to be from them, and it's his first wife, it's his wife, not this concubine or the second wife, but God's design of one man, one woman. Isaac comes out of that union in a miraculous way because God is underscoring one man, one woman. Everyone says, well, Abraham was a polygamist, and these other people had multiple wives. If you watch the Bible on polygamy, it never goes well. It's never a good thing. God can bless despite our stupidity, and he does. Samuel comes about. The prophet Samuel is the, is the, the child of Hannah, uh, who's, who's a sister wife with Penina. Always makes me think of sandwiches. Hannah and Penina, right? And Samuel comes about from this, but it's not like a good idea that, that you have polygamy. In fact, it's a, it's a horrible thing. And as you read the story of Samuel before he's born, it's a great reproach that she has this other wife that can have the babies and she can't. And she's just, it's worse than being barren. It's desolation because she's a barren wife next to a wife that has children. It's horrible. Polygamy is always a bad idea. And people that say, well, they had it in the Old Testament, will read the Old Testament. Genesis 2 says one man, one woman. Genesis 16 shows you the stupidest thing that happens in Genesis, the Hagar episode. And history shows you that this was, um, this was uh, a mistake. And God blesses us despite our mistakes. In Genesis 17.7, I will establish my covenant between me and you, God says. Now, what's going on in chapter 17? 
is you have God telling Abraham that he needs to engage in some surgery after he gets his new name. When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty, if thou should I, walk before me and be blameless. This is after the Hagar event. I'm God Almighty, walk before me and be blameless. Remember, Genesis is God is trustworthy, so you should trust him and so obey him. And so this is the calling of Abraham's obedience as God has told him what he'll do. Abraham trusts him and quits trying to do it his own way. He shouldn't have listened to Sarah. Sarah should have listened to him. God said he would do this. He designed this in marriage. Let's just trust him and, and, um, and ask him to do what he said. Instead, they did the Hagar debacle, and it was stupid. All right. And that's the message of this, is it's dumb not to trust God. And when we do dumb things, it's because we're not trusting him. I am God Almighty, walk before me, be blameless. I will establish my covenant between me and you, and I will multiply you exceedingly. God's told him again and again he's going to give him all these kids. Abram fell on his face, and God talked with him, saying, As for me, behold, my covenant is with you. You will be the father of a multitude of nations. Come on, Lord. I'm 100 years old. I'm 99 years old, is the, is the human viewpoint response. See how valuable Genesis is? The whole message is trust God despite your circumstances. I know it seems like you wouldn't be able to fulfill this promise. We're talking about the creator who made everything and holds it all together. No longer shall name be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham, for I've made you the father of a multitude of nations. So not just the father of a people, but the father of many peoples. I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make nations of you, and kings will come forth from you. Now, in the story, as it develops, they're going to have Isaac, and they'll just, you know, what happens with Hagar and Ishmael, you remember, you've probably read, that um, there's a problem between Granny with her new baby, 89 or 90 year old Sarah, and she's nursing a baby. She makes a big point about this. Who would have thought Sarah would nurse in her old age? And Hagar thinks this is hilarious. And Hagar and Ishmael, who's now a teenager, are uh, mocking the, the mistress of the household. And Sarah says, uh, this is no longer going to be part of my life. I would like for these people to leave. And then Abraham goes to the Lord, and the Lord says, listen to your wife. And so I'm going to bless the boy because of you, but he's out of the household. The inheritance doesn't come to him. It's going to come from your son Isaac. And that's how God establishes uh, the, the seed and the line, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and God does bless, and 12 children are born, 12 sons are born to Ishmael, and there are 12 tribes and 12 kings, and you're off to the races with, um, with new national entities that will come from those, those children. But, but in chapter 17, God tells him that he's going to make him exceedingly fruitful, and a multitude of nations will come forth from him. And now in verse 7, in detail, I will establish, this is the word kum, to raise up, to lift, to raise, to make rise up. And he's saying, I will cause to rise up my covenant. So we translate that, I will establish my covenant. And this is usually the language used for covenants when God says he's going to establish it. I will raise it up. Between me and between you is the literal Hebrew. Beni veneka, Between me and between you. But we don't say it that way in English. We just say between me and you. But then there's another between. And between... Zeraka, your seed, um, after you, for their generations, for their generations. So between me and you, and between me and their seed, 
after you and their generations is what that means. But the idiom is, I'm going to make a covenant between me and you, and between me and them, and their generations after them. And that's the picture of the Abrahamic covenant. And this will be for a brit olam, le brit olam, for an everlasting or an eternal covenant, so that literally for to be for you God. I will be for you. God is the Hebrew and for your seed after you. So I will be your God and your seeds God after you, your seeds for your seed. So I'll be God for you and I'll be God for your seed is what that means. And he makes it explicit. I'm after you and I'm after those coming from you. It doesn't make sense to say that the promises are to Abraham's descendants. And then when Joshua brought them into the land and they partially conquered it, that that's the fulfillment of this. It can't be because God said he was going to do it for him. He didn't do it for him in his 125 years of life. or It's actually longer than that. I think it might be 175 years. I will be your God. Now, this echoes what Jesus teaches in Matthew 22 and Luke 20. Jesus teaches, remember, that he's the God of the living, but he also said he's the God of Abraham. Here he's telling Abraham, I'm your God. You have an eternal being with no beginning and no end talking to a fragile human being who is going to die and his bones are going to disintegrate. And he's saying, I'm your God. And Jesus says, think about the implication of this. By the association for this to be true, for him to be my God, and he's the God of the living, he's going to have to do something with this. We're on his coattails. We always will be. My association with him is the only valuable thing about me. We Christians have to say that. The only good thing we have to offer. Everything else is dust. Ecclesiastes, it's all meaningless under the sun because it's all temporary. But my connection to him makes me eternal. And that's the picture of this being our God. Verse 8, I will give to you and to your seed after you the land of your sojourning. You hear it? I will give to you and to your seed after you the land of your sojourning, all the land of Canaan, for an eternal possession, I will be their God. So he says, I will give to you and to your seed after you the land of your sojourning. It's even explicit here that he calls it the land of their temporary residence. I will in the future give it to you, is the way we take the imperfect. Um, well, actually, the perfect with the vav in this case, following the imperfect from before. In Genesis 23, you have the story of Sarah's death. Sarah lived 127 years. These were the years of the life of Sarah. She died in Kiriath Arba in Hebron in the land of Canaan. And Abraham went in to mourn for Sarah and to weep for her. Now, you're reading assignment since we're a little bit over time. So you've got to read Genesis 23. Genesis 23 uh, is... Twenty verses, and I want you to read it because it's such a neat way that there's this haggling back and forth about I'm going to buy this piece of land. The whole point, I'll summarize it, is Abraham buys a burial plot for his wife. That's all it is. The dialogue, you get 20 verses of this in Hebrew of dialogue between Abraham and the people that own it because Abraham is trying to establish that he will actually have a title deed to this property and own it outright. That's the point of the story. And the people are like, no, 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 it's not. You just take it. You can have it. 
I don't want to have it in the sense that you're letting me use it. I want to own it outright. That's the point of Genesis 23. And it's funny how they haggle back and forth. Now, here's the thing about this. Abram was promised multiple times in his life that he would own this property, the land of Canaan, he and his descendants. He never did. And toward the end of his life, as it's the end of the portrayal of his life in Genesis, he dies in chapter 25 after the 24 uh, story of getting Rebekah for Isaac. So that we're almost done with this, the Abraham narrative. The way the Bible portrays his life, he never once got to have it. And here is the addendum to the story. He had to buy just one burial plot and the whole chapter is about how he had to haggle to make the absolutely certain that he had title deed to that property. And he did. He owned the Machpelah, the place where he buried Sarah, the cave. That's Genesis 23. And I believe its structure, the way Genesis is written by Moses, is to show you that he actually never did own any of the land except the one piece of land he bought with the money God had given him. So how is God the God of his promises if he promised to give Abraham this land and he never received it. Now, maybe you've seen this before. Maybe you've, you just, you reason it through in Matthew 22 and Luke 20 and Hebrews 11. But I wanted to show you up close today. We did. We got pretty close, right, to the original in some of these passages. And I wanted you to see how this is right there in front of everybody's eyes. That either God is scandalous and he's lying to Abraham or the language doesn't do what we think. And when he says, I'll give it to you and to your descendants, it just means your descendants, which is how the liberals will do it. Or, or there has to be future Abraham physically in future Canaan to receive this inheritance. Thanks for your attention tonight. Father, we thank you for the privilege of being in your word and seeing up close how your promises to Abraham have not been fulfilled. The forever promises of land, you have to resurrect him to be the God who keeps your word, who keeps your covenant. And this unconditional covenant you made with Abraham, it's not fulfilled until forever. And we thank you, Father, that we get to be in this phase of history in anticipation of these things. We are looking forward to these things and walking by faith, not by sight. Thank you for the riches we have in the Hebrew Scriptures to show us these things and the challenge we receive from your son through the writing of Luke and Matthew to interpret, to understand the implications that the Lord Jesus said, you are the God of the living. And finally, Father, thank you for the promise that you're our God. And so we are guaranteed resurrection just by that fact, because you're the God of the living. So many more things you've said about a resurrection, but it's implied here in the beginning of scripture. We thank you in Christ's name. We all said, amen.